0: hey everybody this is joshua heston and i'm
1: lisa martin
0: and this is the dark ozarks on the branson podcast network
1: We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else.
0: We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network, on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks.
1: We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. We are discussing the dark history of the Washita's and their Ozarks connections. Actually, this is part two of the discussion. But first, we want to remind you that the Dark Ozarks podcast is now available on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or about any other podcast platform. So many people may be wondering why we are discussing an area outside of the Ozarks proper. Why are we talking about spaces outside of the geological lines of the Ozarks?
0: Well, maybe the Ozarks and the Ouachita's have more than a few secrets, but seriously, there is a lot more that is similar between the regions from healing waters to lost treasures to Wild West shootouts and more. The lines and borders between the Ozarks and the Ouachita's are a bit more fuzzy and the connections and influences are significant.
1: We will return to the Washita's and the Ozarks, but first we want to invite you to like, follow, and subscribe to Dark Ozarks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, as well as your favorite podcast platform. We also invite you to become a Dark Ozarks subscriber on Facebook. On the Dark Ozarks Facebook page, click subscribe, have your login information ready, and join Dark Ozarks behind the scenes for only $4.99 per month.
0: Your four ninety nine dollars per month subscription allows you to come with us on paranormal investigations, deep-dive research, and topics too controversial for public view. The next 100 subscribers will be entered in the drawing for a free Dark Ozarks t-shirt and an exclusive signed first-run copy of the book, Dark Ozarks, The Spook Light. Subscribe today to be entered in the drawing.
1: And now you can get Dark Ozarks t-shirts for sale at darkozarks.com and paranormalsciencelab.com.
0: We encourage you to check out Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, in person and online on Facebook and at the website alwaysbuyingbooks.com for all of your reading needs, including a large section on the paranormal, history, and more. Not to mention, the building is haunted. Tell Bob and Elise that we sent you.
1: We also want to thank Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Beard Engine Brewing is the only English-style brewery in Missouri, And has been twice named Missouri's best brewery by the Missouri Brewers Association. Great beer and great food in a historical building with a noir past. And yes, their building is also haunted. Tell Nate and Tiff that we sent you.
0: So, part two of the Wachata Mountains, particularly with an emphasis, certainly to begin, on the healing waters. I do think it's interesting. We have two significant locations in Arkansas. We've got Hot Springs, and we've got Eureka Springs, Arkansas, separated by, of course, the Arkansas River and a lot of mountain uh, in between. (laughs) Uh, Hot Springs is essentially the crown jewel of the Washcah Mountains, and Eureka Springs is renowned in northwest Arkansas in the Ozarks. A lot of similarities, also a lot of differences.
1: Yes, but I think that it's really interesting because we often associate Eureka Springs particularly, but also Hot Springs, as well as Victorian creations as right. far as the tourism and the spas, etc. But it really goes a lot further back, particularly with Hot Springs.
0: Hot Springs started much earlier, and it's for for individuals who may just have a superficial or cursory review of American history, it could be a little bit of a mind-bender in the reality that American tourism, individuals, in some cases, individuals who are not terribly wealthy, traveling considerable distances in very early phases of the history of the United States, simply for tourism, in some cases, the Healing Springs aspect being the icing on the cake.
1: Very true. As far back as 1803, the Dunbar and Hunter Expedition, which was sent out by President Jefferson, this was part of the expeditions to explore the Louisiana Purchase. They explored the Washita and the Arkansas River basins. And when they got to Hot Springs, they found an English speaking settler who had lived there for 40 years. <laughs>
0: Oh, nothing like being late to the party.
1: Exactly. They they were expecting emptiness, particularly from European settlers. And you could tell from some of the journal entries, they were rather surprised that it was a pretty populated area.
0: And the I mean Hot Springs is named Hot Springs for a reason. The waters come out at very high temperature, and they they are an important part. The springs themselves and bathing in the very hot mineral water is an, an integral part even today of hot springs arkansas tourism
1: it is and that that's been a constant it simply has grown over time and incorporated a lot of interesting history in the process but it is it's interesting because of the sort of the dichotomy with Eureka Springs. Eureka Springs came in much later, although with the healing waters and spas, but that aspect of Eureka Springs isn't nearly as much in the forefront of tourism now as it is in Hot Springs.
0: It's not, and that is something that I suspect really allowed Hot Springs to continue to flourish, whereas many other healing spring locations Eureka Springs being one of them suffered extensively in the first half of the 20th century is that hot springs water stayed hot that didn't change and so that that aspect of essentially getting to soak in the therapeutic qualities of this very hot water was not something that you could replace with other therapeutic options it is Oftentimes unrealized that throughout the Ozarks and in other places as well in the 19th century and early 20th century, the, these various locations of healing waters, in some cases and possibly many cases, the healing waters were just spring water. But they were able to be marketed effectively and in some cases perhaps create a, a lot of hubris in terms of of attention. Charles Morrow Wilson, in his book The Bodacious Ozarks, talks about the peculiarly, peculiarly vertical settlement of Shantytown in, in Carroll County at Arkansas in which the uh, ill and the insane ran by the thousands hoping that, that they would get cured. And we have We have Eau de Vie, which is a a ghost town in the Christian County, Taney County region. We have Ponce, originally named Ponce de Leon, for its healing, quote-unquote, healing waters, and lots and lots of other towns for this. What happened to cause many of these towns to disappear, and certainly something that happened that pushed the economy of Eureka Springs down For a number of decades from approximately 1930s 1940s 1950s was the introduction of more modern medicine particularly antibiotics which reduced the fervor to attempt to find a cure for a lot of things and the other thing that probably two really main issue as well was the fact that urban areas began to develop water treatment systems that meant that we're not contracting dysentery every July.
1: Always a plus, always a plus.
0: It is. So it is one of those things. These are, these are substrates of our world that a hundred years ago, even in a comparatively very modern America with approximately speaking, the advent of telephones and plenty of railroads and airplanes, et cetera, that it was not uncommon to be contracting severe infectious disease from our water supplies and seeing some really terrible things happen with that. Something as simple as taking the cure, going to traveling a couple of hundred miles by rail, finding yourself in a beautiful mountain village and oh my goodness, uh, something changed the water so amazing. What's different? It's It's not dirty water.
1: Yes, that's something that we take for granted. And when there are examples that are not clean water, like Flint, Michigan, we we are just astonished. But that was a very common situation around, not just here, but in Europe as well.
0: And as a, as a result of that, now something that I I feel really allowed Eureka Springs to sustain was something extraordinary. And very beautiful developments that happened in the 1880s into about the 1910s, and we'll talk more, you know, in depth as we start doing more comparative on that. But Eureka Springs definitely went through a lull again in the 1930s with the Great Depression, the 1940s because of World War II, and the 1950s because of a transition to automotive travel. And simply put, the roads to Eureka Springs had not caught up. Many of those factors no. were. Different for hot springs
1: that's true that's true plus by that point hot springs had become more business oriented as far as shipping products across the country which helped advertising which helped recognition you of course you had you had the horse track so a lot of people were familiar with it for sporting a lot of celebrities, so I'm not always on the right side of the law, uh, were associated with Hot Springs. So it had a very, let's face it, it had a setsy reputation that I it think did. helped sustain it.
0: It did. And you see some of that sustainability going in with some extraordinarily beautiful hotels in the early 20th century.
1: Yes. And not to mention just a little bit of corruption that helped things keep moving along smoothly that did not transpire in the same way in Eureka
0: Springs. (laughs) Um, But something that is is really fascinating to me is that Gangster Activity and the Mob, the Mafia, both had interest in both cities.
1: They did. They did. And it was not uncommon for gangsters of the 20s and 30s to run to Eureka Springs either hot springs there, was more well
0: known for them but. lots lots of interesting cities in the ozars that that happened very true <laughs> and it, it you know you think of hiding out in the hills but in some cases i'm going to divert over in terms of prohibition era gangster activity in joplin not so much hiding out in the hills, but hiding out at the approach of at an approximate proximity away from Chicago.
1: Very much so. In fact, there were large safe houses in the Joplin area. Harold Farmer was known to run one of the biggest ones, and he was very close, closely associated with. Pretty boy Floyd, the Carpus Barker gang were also well known in Hot Springs, and allegedly the outfit out of Chicago. Legend has it that the outfit, Al Capone's gang, had a set had a separate safe house in Joplin at the Olivia.
0: Oh, which is fair. It's fair. Lots it of is. lots of things at the Olivia uh, that are really extraordinary. Now, something that from the grittiness of the gangsters in the gangster area era to something that is a bit more metaphysical conjecture, we have the, these two areas. There's a lot of mysticism that is associated with, quote unquote, healing waters.
1: Yes. And that goes back a long ways.
0: It does it does and one thing i have heard compared the metaphysical idea of you know a, a type of vortex for example in sedona and the idea that there's something similar in the eureka springs area that's a, one conjecture that i've heard of course metaphysical tourism is a big part of eureka springs more and, and more so i think it is it is and and i think that that Certainly, it's, it's definitely more part of the mainstream today, even 10 years ago or 20 years ago, the fact that that was comparatively easy to find and to connect with in Eureka Springs, I think created a sense of refuge in, mm-hmm. an, in and of itself for, for individuals that have those connections or are seeking those connections. But this, this idea, and I remember one person, I have no validation on this one way or the other, but I just remember the conversation saying essentially that the Ozarks are resting on a giant quartz crystal bed and all of that energy is just having to go somewhere. And you combine that as a concept with the, the idea of healing springs, regardless of any scientific base, you have the, this idea that I think is potent in terms of of a connection.
1: Potentially, yes. I I won't say what was going through my mind, but yes, the Ozark sits on a bed of crystal. And I do think there is something to the fact that there is a lot of energy that is conducted through quartz. But it has to go somewhere. I'm not convinced that it's channeled into particular vortexes in certain spots. Any more so than any other area in the
0: Ozarks. I think that's very fair.
1: I don't I, think I don't think all Crystal Lay lines run to Eureka Springs. I guess is what I'm going to say.
0: <laughs> and and I, 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 I'm I'm definitely not in disagreement about that. I do the I think the thing that is interesting to me is this cultural subconscious that tends to work its way in. terms of what people are are drawn to or an idea certainly for me growing up in flatlands and then traveling through the ozarks one of the 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 two things that three things that really stuck out to me as a four-year-old was one how much water was running everywhere It it was april and april of 82 and it was just it was so green and there was so much clean clear water running everywhere and i grew up in locations where running water was silty and mudded and you couldn't see the bottom of it and mm-hmm. that was that really stuck out the other as was of course coming through the southern missouri the the roadside stands with big chunks of blue glass and i still fondly miss the big chunks of blue glass but when i was four years old and we didn't stop to talk to anybody to find out they were big chunks of blue glass. As a four-year-old, it's very easy to imagine that it was some sort of mystical stone that was translucent. And just creating this image, sort of the traveler's image in the mind of something otherworldly within the space. And then I remember, of course, the, the last one was stopping in very Northern Arkansas at a curio shop just off of Highway 65, and ironically, if it was around Omaha, it would only be like 14 miles from my house today, and that's really a mind bender for me. We'll wrap those uh, <laughs> disparate points into one spot, but I got my first Arkansas diamond, and of course, it's just it's clear quartz crystal. But I was, as a four year old, absolutely convinced that, that quartz crystal was was magical, and spent hours and hours and hours playing with it and making up all sorts of stories that it was some sort of magical talisman okay so some things never change, with me yeah but the, <laughs> the experience left me with a with a beautiful not really having words for it but a beautiful metaphysical other associated with the deep pozarchs
1: i agree that that atmosphere exists whether or not they're particularly potent vortexes one place or another is the only thing that I'm not in my experience convinced of but if people believe that then with Eureka Springs so be it it works I guess for me Eureka Springs I I I like the architecture I like the history I'm bemused by this metaphysical utopia idea that they're creating but it, to me, the Ozarks, what is mystical, is is somewhat similar, but it's definitely for me. It's the hills, the trees, the underground space, the underground water and caves have always drawn me, even more so than than springs. It's the underground rivers, I, and I'm not sure why.
0: I I think so too, and it's it is extraordinarily evocative, and and just to be clear, I'm I'm not espousing a particular vortex idea one way or the other. I think the idea is cool, but I think oh, I okay. what is neat, it's more cool, is just this sort of shared consciousness of space mm-hmm. that is, and now in terms of Eureka Springs, something that I find really really fascinating is that. Something that helped your experience sustain, whereas Odeby or, or Ponce did not in, in any way, shape, or form the same way, is actually a little thing called reconstruction after the Civil War. And so many of the really extraordinary structures and homes in your experience, not to mention, of course, the Crescent Hotel, and which was uh, opened in 1886. These this was a grand infrastructure that was developed by essentially a union veterans who were Mm -hmm. heavily involved in new state politics. The fact that the Confederate government had been removed, the state government of Arkansas had been removed and had been replaced by Union government, and those very high ranking and very very influential both veterans and industrialists and there was a lot of a lot of blurred lines between those two definitions found in Eureka Springs an extraordinary opportunity to invest
1: I think in part because of the springs of the location and it hadn't been developed the way that Hot Springs had and Hot Springs already at that point was fairly entrenched with vice with corruption and that's not something that they they hide at this point it is what it is and that went on for a very long time and so you weren't going to do the same thing there that you could at Eureka Springs
0: and at that at that juncture point the history had cultural strata had already been developed at Hot Springs Mm -hmm. a long time before 1870s and and along with that hot springs was largely untouched by the war so they they didn't have the opportunity to burn it down and rebuild it uh eureka springs on the other hand barely existed prior to the war so it was a place to pioneer this particular era the 1880s 1890s concepts of industrialization and in this case it meant bringing in the railroad which was a monumental task when you look at the land. And and the railroad ends at Eureka Springs. It was brought in specifically for Eureka, which is extraordinary when you think about it.
1: Well, and I do have to think that part of that was the deliberate intent to replicate Hot Springs experience and business
0: you look at you look at the the industrialists and the and the war veterans' plans for Eureka Springs, and it is very difficult to not imagine that they had an eye on hot springs.
1: Yes, I, I agree, and we have said that we've said this a number of times on on the show. But hot springs is another example of the Wild West really started in the Ozarks, and really did not end in Hot Springs.
0: I agree. Very, uh, very, very
1: continued much. throughout.
0: And later, later in the, in the era than most people would associate, the very interesting, the Hot Springs gunfighter, the Hot Springs shootout, which occurred on March 16th of 1899, two separate law enforcement agencies fighting it out on the streets of Hot Springs.
1: Very true. But you to, un, to understand that, you really have to go back to about the 1850s and 1860s to understand how you get there. And it really started with Frank Flynn, who by the Civil War time had established gambling very openly, as well as prostitution. And he basically locked down Hot Springs, and anyone that wanted to have a gambling house or whatever had to get his permission. It was sort of an early version of mafia hierarchy.
0: It It really was. To be perfectly honest. And there is something consistent in terms of the underbelly of the development of the Great American West, the opening of these spaces, as well as American history in general. And depending upon one's perspective, now fortunately or unfortunately, the Hot Springs shootout in 1999 is comparatively little known, as opposed to, say, the OK Corral, although the death toll at the Hot Springs shootout was apparently higher than the OK Corral. Mm-hmm. did yeah. not make it into the, the memos for the uh, Hollywood screenwriters for TV shows in the 1950s, so are less familiar. But... Yeah. Uh, we see this sort of, for lack of a better word, positions of convenience. Individuals who at some times would be quote-unquote outlaws, at the same times those individuals would be law enforcement. And it goes back and forth in the same people.
1: Right. And you see that you meant, you mentioned, okay, Corral, the, the Earp brothers were a good example of that. They, at various times throughout their lives, they either were running gambling establishments, running brothels, or were law enforcement officers. And sometimes the time frames kind of overlapped. And in fact, there is a connection with Wyatt Earp to Hot Springs later on. But I I find it interesting. Hot Springs was an example of these issues of the Old West and corruption and vice ending up being played out very publicly. And I found I find that interesting. It happened over a fairly long time. After the Civil War, a fellow named Jim Lane from Illinois went to Hot Springs and decided to compete with Flynn, would not pay him off. And that started a war, basically. And you, that went back and forth. And Lane finally goes to Louisiana. I think he goes to New Orleans, if I remember. And then, ironically, in the course of him going to Louisiana, he's acquainted with General Major Doran, who had been a Confederate officer. And he basically comes back to Hot Springs and reopens Lane's uh, gambling establishments out of defiance. And then People start dying.
0: <laughs> and it's, I think it's fair to say that the, the details are complicated.
1: Mm-hmm. And then the newspapers got involved trying to stamp out the corruption. And so you ended up with newspaper men being shot, shooting some of these basically gangsters, et cetera. And it goes back and forth. And Flynn had been able to basically remain on top because he would pay off the sheriff and he would pay off the Hot Springs Police Department. And basically the shootout in 1899 came about because they started competing with each other for who's going to control the vice racket, which police department or sheriff's department is going to control the vice <laughs> <laughs> racket, and so they ultimately end up in a shootout in a saloon, and a number of officers ended up killed.
0: Yes, and it. And, uh, oh, I was just saying if this doesn't
1: sound like Tombstone. I don't know what it does.
0: <laughs> oh, and I think it's it's reasonable to say based on the on Hot Springs location, the Washita's, and then you know, essentially southwestern Arkansas the its connection with Fort Smith, it's you know comparative proximity to Texarkana. We're we're dealing with a often overlooked space of the old west.
1: Yes. It doesn't look like tumbleweeds and buttes. (laughs) And I think I think that mass media, movies and TV have given us that visage for so long that people associate those spaces solely with the Old
0: West almost. Yes, I I tend to agree. Now, we have an interesting amount of mafia involvement. I know we mentioned this earlier, but a lot of specific mafia involvement in Hot Springs.
1: Yes. Before we start that, one thing I want to throw in is that there is another story that ties into Tombstone in that the sheriff reported early 1890s, and I don't remember the date off the top of my head, it was 1891 or two, I believe, that Wyatt Earp floated into Hot Springs and was dealing cards and dealing crooked faro game, which he was wont to do at times. I mean, actually, his last hurrah with the L.A. Police Department. Working for them ended because they ended up arresting him at a Faro game in like 1911, and so people got mad at the at the card game and and there were threats made and everything. The sheriff told Wyatt Earp that he didn't want trouble and he didn't want his he didn't want his kind of trouble in town, and he better leave. And said that Wyatt Earp just just left town peacefully and didn't make make a fuss.
0: Oh, I like that. Uh, I'm gonna have to check on my puppy for just a moment, but could okay. you give give folks just a, a an overarching, a little bit of an intro in terms of how mafia interacted with this center part of America, it, it, often in places where we do not expect it. This is a long way from Chicago.
1: Okay, we'll do. Basically, after the sort of the last hurrah of the old west and the 1899 shootout that kind of ended that kind of violence and notoriety around the gambling rackets by the 1920s the mafia was moving in and in part because it was a resort town they could leave new york they could leave chicago and go down there and golf and play cards or whatever and not be noticed. They brought money in and so Hot Springs looked the other way and we ended up with a lot of mafia figures spending time in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and a lot of them that their names are familiar and some that were very have been very violent criminals then led very peaceful existences in Hot Springs. You know, turned over a new leaf, so to speak.
0: I oh, love that. I love that aspect of it, and the fact that in some cases, you know, they'd say a a normalization of these personalities in a mm-hmm. in a new environment that, to a certain degree, was allowing them to just begin living maybe the lives that they wanted to live.
1: Exactly. Well, same thing happened with some some of the bank robbers of that era too in Joplin. They lived out their lives into the nineteen eighties even very peacefully. So something about this part of the country, I don't know.
0: <laughs> it, uh you know, one of our source citations for tonight's episode from Legends of America. I, this is on page 61 of our notes, but I I love the reference that many of them were were, were seen as, as uh, not only very friendly and very polite and very positive, but also as very good tippers. There you go. And they, they left large percentages for their for their evening meals. And um, nothing, nothing is more ingratiating to the wait staff than finally getting paid well.
1: That's true, but on the other hand, a lot of those same gangsters were known to be very generous to people in New York and Chicago. In fact, during the height of the Great Depression, Al Capone ran soup kitchens and fed poor neighborhoods at no cost.
0: Though I mean that and if people wonder how the the Robin Hood motif develops, not hard to figure it out.
1: No, you you help people out that are, are in dire straits and they help you out and help protect you, to be perfectly honest. But part of the reason that the mafia became so entrenched in Hot Hot Springs was in 1926, Leo McLaughlin was elected mayor. And I guess he just decided that the practical approach to all this was say, we're an open city. (laughs) And basically turned a blind eye to the criminal activity as long as they were polite and orderly and treated people well
0: which is fair let's let's face it
1: and that continued until 1967 and we'll double back around but how it ultimately ended was this was so it was so open and and everyone knew that it was a group uh, and it's not in the reference for tonight but i've read it before a group of four or five hometown boys that came back from world war ii came back and said we're tired of this and they made it their mission to get into local politics and shut down the illegal gambling etc and it took them about 20 years to do so
0: <laughs> which brings <laughs> us from 1947 to 1967.
1: yep so you know that that's kind of how it is it happened but from the 20s to the 60s if you if you if you watch people who are want to watch documentaries on on the mafia of that period or anything most of those guys were in hot springs it's really pretty amazing and al capone I, i find it so interesting he first went down there with his first boss Johnny Torrio, and stayed at the Majestic Hotel. They started seeing what all was going on. There was a lot of production of spring water in the area, which of course made sense, that was sold throughout the country. So he bought a failing dairy outside of town and turned it into his own moonshine distillery. And if you ever wonder why Moonshine is sold in clear bottles, it's because of Al Capone and hot springs. Wow. The, what he did was the Mountain Valley Spring Water Company had been distributing water from hot springs since the 1870s. And, you know, it's an iconic brand. love their advertising so he put his they they sold their water in in clear containers so he put his moonshine in clear glass bottles and called it mountain valley water and then they would smuggle bootleg out in tanker railroad cars as mountain valley water
0: (laughs) well it was almost water
1: it was almost water But very, you know, I mean, it's so bold, you almost wonder, I mean, obviously in Hot Springs it worked because the sheriff and the police chief were looking the other way, and the mayor. Very true. But you just, you know, it's just so bold that, you know, this is shipped, shipped north and did it very successfully. Everyone talks about the bootleg that Capone brought in across the great lakes to chicago and it's like well he did some but most of it he just ran up on railroad cars from hot springs arkansas
0: oh arkansas moonshine
1: that's right
0: that's that's the way to do it it just the the nuances and of course i had the opportunity to uh, speak with some individuals who began the process of doing in-depth research, for example, on the gunfight, et cetera, uh, in 1889, and have gotten just far enough to know that there's a lot of things that we don't know, and that this entire, these entire experiences are very complex, and I think those mm-hmm. complexities are, at the least, sometimes they're frustrating, but in reality, that, to me anyway, they're just extraordinarily interesting and that really speak to just how fuzzy our history can get.
1: Oh, for one thing, people pay very little attention. So you you get very little snippets. And the connections between things and people are often lost. And so you you get at these sort of glamorous stories, and they're all out of sync with everything else that was going on. And the whole story is so much more fascinating. Budsy Siegel, Dutch Schultz, Lucky Luciano, all of these guys were in Hot Springs. And it it is pretty amazing. And actually, Lucky Luciano was arrested in Hot Springs on warrants from then New York Attorney General Thomas Dewey, who later ran for president. and he was arrested. But a local judge released Luciano after a five thousand dollar bond was posted.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's that's how that roles. It is is really, really phenomenal. Of course, if I had to choose between spending my winters in Chicago or South Arkansas, I'd probably go with South Arkansas just
1: for- Oh, I, I would too. And and for you know, like Luciano and Schultz and them out of New York yeah, I'd take that over New York winners too so <laughs> but one of almost resident gangster in Hot Springs for a very long time, someone that is not quite as known to the general public and that's Oni Madden he was his nickname was the killer. He was a hitman for the New York mob and was released from Sing Sing Prison in 1933 and began to visit Hot Springs and decided, he basically decided to live, you know, the lifestyle that he couldn't live in New York because he was so well known. He made a lot of money in New York so he could and he met a local lady they got married and in 1935 he settled down and lived there for the rest of his life and this is a, this is a guy who he had been the owner of the stork club and the cotton club yes yes, you know which I, I find fascinating going from that culture to hot springs to basically play golf
0: right right and uh and and i think it's those aspects of the stories are very humanizing Not saying that what they did wasn't crimes by any stretch of the imagination, not sugarcoating it, but some of these names and some of these individuals' exploits have made them larger than life, in some cases larger than life villains, and I think there's something very interestingly humanizing about the fact that these are also just people.
1: Yeah, I mean they are, no matter right or wrong for what they've done you know, in different things, but there are people and there are human sides to the stories that I think that's one thing you see so much anymore. And I think social media has contributed to this fact. people have very one-dimensional views of people and events. And it's very easy for people to denigrate wholeheartedly across the board on whatever subject. And it's rarely quite that simple.
0: I agree. I agree. And, and I think that it does. It does really, uh, again, anytime that we're, and social media certainly is certainly the newest iteration of this, something that I think is very positive is the, the introduction of long format, uh, long format, podcast, et cetera. And, and not just obviously with ours, but just in general, allowing for the nuances and the complexities of things to be discussed. And that's something that honestly was missing before social media in the the idea that that everything has to be squeezed into a you know a 30 or 40 second news bite, uh, particularly on a 24-7 cycle.
1: Right, or a 30-minute TV show or an hour minus the, the commercial time.
0: Yeah. And this is it's you know, I think there's some very as we move forward in terms of our technology, I think that there are some very strong positives that give me give me reason to to be reasonably optimistic at least once in a while
1: yes i, I want i i want to talk about alvin carpus just a little bit in his connection with hot hot springs because there's so many connections with the rip with the ozarks as well alvin carpus and actually he was known as creepy carpus was america's last official public enemy number one And he was the Carpus in the Barker-Carpus gang, the Ma-Barker gang. And by about 1935, most of the other members had been killed or or captured. The Barker boys were dead, Ma-Barker. And he was on the run. And he holed up in Hot Springs with his wife and... It was there that the FBI caught up with him in 19... Well, tried to in 1936, March 30th, 1936. They raided the house, only to find that the two had already fled to New Orleans. Both were later apprehended by FBI agents and in July, Carpus pleaded guilty to kidnapping and was sent to Alcatraz, served 33 years, was released in 1968, and then died in 1979, from an overdose of sleeping pills while living in staying. But you go back to the Barker Carpus gang and they first really got notoriety for a killing in West Plains, Missouri for killing a, a policeman. And they had a lot of bank robberies and other robberies in Missouri, particularly Missouri, Arkansas and Oklahoma. They originally, when the gang formed, they formed in Tulsa and the Barkers were living down there, but they originally were from Webb City, Missouri. We're no,
0: close to home.
1: Yes. And they also, an in- interesting tidbit, after uh, the Barker boys were were killed in a shootout with police, their bodies were put on public display.
0: Do you know, do you know where they were living in Webb City or the, approximately?
1: Um, well, my understanding is that Ma Barker was born in Carterville, which which is across the railroad tracks on the east side, just on the other side of the roundabout on the east side of town. Yep. And that they had lived in Webb City. I don't know the address, but actually she grew up friends with Harold Farmer, who had the large safe house, the Chicago safe house, and who he planned the Kansas City massacre. And he was one of the first inmates at Alcatraz. So he and Carpus were both inmates at Alcatraz. And- Very- and and Harold Farmer is is credited with teaching the Barker Boyds and Carpus how to rob banks.
0: Mm. Very small world.
1: Yes. <laughs> so a lot of these guys, when things got rough somewhere, they went to hot springs to try to lay low.
0: I think that's fair. And it's it's a fascinating layer, layers and layers of history. I want to. We'll transition, I think, at this point to some buried treasure, but I just want to throw in as a a concluding note that very similar things happened in Eureka Springs as well. And there's some very, a lot of of intersection between corruption and gangsters and very, very interesting history with a number of locations. One of the most well known and one of my favorites is the Basin Park Hotel. Yes. You know, phenomenal location. In the case of both Hot Springs and Eureka Springs, if, uh, if you get a chance, never been there, you should go.
1: You definitely should. I guess, is there one story you would like to tell of of Eureka Springs and, and Criminal Underworld?
0: I think the, just as a, as a broad moment, was the fact that, not dissimilarly in the, you know, in, by, in 67, when there was a, a major push to clean up things in hot springs. There was also a, a local push, and a you know county sheriff in for Carroll County who was working very hard to clean things up and arrest the the right people at the right time, and was again allegedly I'll say that as my official disclaimer because I just heard the story secondhand at the Basin Park Hotel, but that he was really struggling with arresting folks in the midst of illegal gambling on the top floor of the Basin Park Hotel, because every time that he would get ready to stage a raid, that individuals within the highway patrol would tip off the good folks at the hotel.
1: Well, I mean, that, that, that seems to be in line with things that happened at Hot Springs, so it's, it's very conceivable.
0: And of course, this was, you know, not long after the Second World War right so
1: (laughs) definitely some similarities
0: and and i think it in some cases just in terms of the the overall approach or opinion or idea uh, of which which there's there's many differing opinions in terms of vice and i think as a as as an overall as, as an overall statement this is very broad generality but in many cases, our communities are much safer today than they were in the past in American history. right um, There are obviously exceptions, but just as a general a general point, a general idea, something that is our our con- our conception of violence as opposed to the reality of violence per capita, and the fact that a hundred years ago, eighty years ago, fifty years ago, we were not being inundated by reports of violence around the globe and around the country. Uh, Today, our our connection with social media, our connection with the 24 seven news cycle means that our minds are being constantly filled with something horrible happening every day, every minute of every day. And it creates the perception that things are just getting drastically worse. All the time, I don't think that in many cases, that's reality. There are exceptions. So right. again, I'm speaking in approximate generalities, but there's that is is an aspect of it. The other thing, and that is maybe a little more controversial, but the concepts of vice have lessened and and not necessarily for the worse in the in the sense that things that we can do today in many cases like buy alcohol on Sunday at Walmart that, or or let's face it, buy alcohol. That-
1: Particularly when you're talking about the 20s, yeah.
0: (laughs) You know, a variety of authoritarian structures to label certain things, monumental crime that today we don't think anything about.
1: Very, very true. I I had a professor that always said, you know, legislating morality never works. And and that's very, very true that throughout time, efforts to legislate morality, such as prohibition, et cetera, usually in some way backfire or create another vice or criminal element that wasn't there before and that certainly was the case with prohibition and certainly helped sustain that activity in hot springs
0: and, and and i think that that is an aspect even sometimes a subconscious or an unspoken aspect of the mystique of that era in the sense that these were quote unquote bad guys and they, in many cases they did end up, in addition to illegally selling bootleg like alcohol, did end up doing things that at times were pretty horrendous. Yes. But the the idea undergirding structure of a subjective criminality, the idea that before prohibition was signed into law, None of this is particularly illegal. As soon as prohibition was repealed, none of it was particularly illegal. But during that moment, during that time frame, these men who were would have otherwise just been going about their lives uh, suddenly became criminals. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) And I think again, I think it's it, you know, is a is an aspect of the the Robin uh, Hood archetype.
1: It is, I, 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 it certainly is, particularly combined with some of, a lot of the movies that came out of the subject matter.
0: You know. And, and, and I, you
1: was, you know, yes. Beatty and, and oh, you know, all of these, that it it became a mystique.
0: Mm-hmm. It did. And, you know, I would, You know, I do want to temper that with the fact that these are also individuals or, you know, various aspects of these individuals, gangs and groups, did commit genuine atrocities as well.
1: Oh, definitely. Definitely. And that's that's the part that's often left out in the romanticized version. Not all of it. I mean, certainly say the St. Valentine's Day massacre is well known, etc. But for the most part, we tend to cherry pick what we romanticize.
0: We do. We do. And, and understandably so. Again, because I think we, we like our heroes comparatively simple.
1: Well, you don't have to think about it too much that
0: way. <laughs> oh, this is now
1: something true. that people really think a lot about is very treasured.
0: Yes, it is and uh, and hunt for it yes. uh, quite effectively and there's there are so many very treasure stories associated with the Ozarks and Watchtahs if we started doing an exhaustive list we we wouldn't be done with this particular episode anytime soon but what are a handful of your favorites
1: oh well of course the Yoakum dollar mine always comes to comes up I'm always fascinated by the the Spanish treasure stories.
0: I am too, I am too. I think that that the, the association with lost Spanish gold or lost Spanish silver is a very, very powerful motif. And it, it gets very, they're, they're, they typically are very easy stories to tell from a folkloric standpoint, but then you start digging in and things get a lot more complicated.
1: Yeah, well, either a lot more complicated, or there's nothing there.
0: And that's the idea that mountains and mining silver, so they have to go together.
1: <laughs> yes, it doesn't always go that way. You have the the mines, the lost mines motif. You do. You do. And, and then you have the lost caravan motif as well with the Spanish, that the conquistadors were bringing caravans of gold from the Southwest back to the Mississippi mm-hmm. and were lost somewhere between Kansas, Missouri, and Arkansas, <laughs> basically, somewhere. There's versions, mm-hmm. all three versions.
0: And again, I think that there's a, an interesting aspect of plausibility or at least plausible deniability in the, the caravan story, because it really harkens to this point in early settlement before the United States, which France and Spain were both vying over this territory. Um, that begins with Louisiana, Arkansas, Missouri, and then stretches northward and westward, what became the Louisiana Purchase. And you see a lot of, a lot more movements of commerce and movements of troops and, and just movement of European people in, in ways that we would, I, I suspect, see as out of place in terms of our perception or our expectation for that era.
1: Well, and, and a very good example of that, one, one of the largest battles on what is now United States soil. Actually, happened in the 1640s between the Spanish and the French in what is now Nebraska. This uh, this predates the Indian Wars in New England, etc. The English were hardly on the continent at this point when the Spanish and the French were having large battle. A friend of mine, and actually met Rob. His father was Span uh, Spanish. His mother was French and actually had ancestors on both sides of that battle. The concept that there was a you know, a a war going on in the middle of North America in the 1640s by two of the three dominant European powers is something that most people really don't conceive of.
0: And definitely do not associate with Nebraska cornfields.
1: Exactly. So a lot of things were happening before <laughs> the United States.
0: And when you, when you start taking that into account, the idea of a caravan with some sort of wealth being lost in some way. Now, the, the hallmarks of the story are comparatively simple. A Catastrophe occurs typically at the hands of an unnamed Native American tribe and one sole survivor makes their way back to somewhere to report Mm -hmm. the story otherwise we wouldn't have a story
1: that's true i mean you know it it makes it a lot easier to create a story if you have a survivor
0: Uh, the other the other aspect of that that i really like is the the accoutrement of of the of the conquistadors being discovered a spanish helmet a distinctive spanish helmet a belt and buckle a breastplate these types of things it i don't know whether it awakens the indiana jones portion of my brain or the ducktails lost treasures of the golden sun portion of my brain but <laughs> one of the two portions of my brain gets activated when we start talking about these sorts of things and and again i think that i mean obviously the the mystique of lost wealth is the wealth, but you see Scrooge McDuck with the dollar signs in his eyes. But the I think part of the attraction is the mystery—the idea that there's somehow there are clues. There's a there's a treasure map. There's a eighteen paces south of the ancient black oak tree on the top of so and so's ridge is very mm-hmm. evocative. It, it's it's the stuff that as little kids, we dream about innately.
1: Yes. Well, in fact, we we have one of those maps that was handed down for generations in a family that we have copy of. Yes. And it's just hard to pin down exactly where it might be, but there's there's quite a few details involved that at a point you think they're it must be real place because there are so many details
0: very true with,
1: with, you know but the larger trope of the stories generally are that romantic version that seems it's very akin to the indian princess stories that they it seems to have traveled west so there are similar stories out in arizona and new mexico with this it, tends to be west of the Mississippi you 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 step into uh, Arkansas or Texas and you start getting conquistador stories
0: for me it just reminds me of Nancy Drew and the mystery of Shadow Ranch (laughs) the phosphorescent white ghost horse
1: yes are you sure that wasn't Skinwalker Ranch
0: (laughs) it was just south
1: just south (laughs) there's a map I'm sure
0: (laughs) Somewhere,
1: <laughs>
0: and but again, romantic outlaw, lost love, uncovering uh, Spanish gold, melting the gold down into tiny golden hearts, and you can laugh about it. We do laugh about it. We are laughing about it. Having grown up with my sister reading me Nancy Drew mysteries, something that that was a part of that original series was storylines that that somehow resonated with this very romanticized earlier era of the united states
1: well i mean it's a good literary device to use what's what's what has transpired and moved into legend and folklore are good material is good material for literature because it's worked
0: it it has it has and the the elements are there now because of the extreme complexities of human interaction across the space do some of these stories have plausibility yes they do
1: they do the lost mine lore it's generally kind of lumped into the lost louisiana mines of the louisiana purchase it comes from two sources one actually has that feel of authenticity because it comes from colonial reports of a mineral located near modern Pike County, Arkansas, from the Spanish uh, territorial governor in 1778. So we're going back quite a ways, Francisco Bolognese, he reported gold diggings and on the Little Missouri River, which is a tributary of the Washita River and more reportings in 1803 but that ended up being probably pyrite and William Dunbar who we mentioned before reported finding pyrite so or fool's gold so that is one source of these legends and probably a lot of it was people finding fool's gold thinking it was gold but that gets all mixed up in again advertising we've talked about this in the ozarts before how the ozarts has been marketed but the lost mine story was incorporated into 19th century stock promotions in the washita mountains particularly
0: hot springs railroad
1: and it was a way to get people to come to the resorts
0: <laughs> and and i think something else that we see across and just in terms of expansionist west land speculators industrialization all of these things in just a wide variety of people doing a wide variety of things some of them very ethical and some of them very not in terms of either trying to get the drop on expansionism or doing things to essentially hoodwink people into Investing in whatever it is that they were getting ready to pose.
1: Yes, and over time, this spread from the Washita's actually into the Ozarks with the same legends, and into Oklahoma. Even you know, when people get gold fever, they get gold fever, and so it's, it tends to spread. I mean, there were even newspaper accounts of describing a Catholic treasure with gem encrusted gold platters. A gold Madonna, Aztec gold, valued at 110 million dollars, and this is back in 1905. So you start advertising these things, people go looking.
0: Well, and I mean, you go back to the the California Gold Rush the fact that, mm-hmm. ironically, the the people who made the the real wealth was the people selling the food,
1: selling food and and supplies. I mean, that's. The gold rush is why we're wearing Levi's today, and it wasn't yeah. because of the gold. If <laughs> Levi's starts selling durable pants was <laughs> a better uh, endeavor.
0: And now you mentioned the, uh, the gold plates, uh, you know, the Madonna, etc. This idea, first of all, of Spanish gold, but then beyond that, this idea of Aztec treasure, This sort of, this Mesoamerican mystique that exists. It does hearken, as we've noted a number of times in the past few episodes, to underlying civilization that existed, pre-Columbian civilization, associated with Cahokia, and was pretty reasonably associated with uh, Central American empires uh, prior to a Spanish conquest. And... I, I think just enough, just enough hints remained at various times and places in order that there, there was an aspect of unspoken memory and an aspect of mystique associated with this ancient civilization, an exotic foreign civilization believed to have existed within the space of, say, the Ozarks. And mm-hmm. there, there's also a of a crypto civilization aspect involved in a, a a people out of place it's almost Atlantean in in its mystique and it's not saying that some of those people did not at times traverse through these spaces but right. I, I think the the impetus for the the desire for the lost treasure the mystique about the lost treasure etc really harkens to this deep resonance of wanting this highly romanticized unearthing of pre-civilization
1: i i agree and one wanting to be the one to discover it for sure
0: yes plays a part without a, a doubt it's it's not any fun if somebody else does it needs to be you
1: i mean there i have even seen old newspaper accounts of Supposed diggings in the Carthage, Missouri area, finding gold, which I don't believe for a second. But maybe someone did find something that was shiny. I'm not sure. But
0: well, and 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 again, like the unlike other areas of the United States, particularly in the Rockies, where gold and silver mining is is a real thing, the likelihood of of unearthing naturally occurring gold and silver in the Ozarks is low. However, the possibility of unearthing something that someone else buried at an earlier time is so, is a bit more plausible.
1: True, now I, I will say that in the mining districts, in the lead mining districts, you can find trace amounts of gold mm-hmm. and and they would find very small trace amounts but not enough that you're going to get wealthy on or anything like that and so someone might find that near a letter zinc deposit but usually just enough to get it cited right very i agree but you know if someone buried it then you can find it and As time went on, that made a lot of sense, particularly with the Civil War, because a lot of people did bury their money during the Civil War because it was so dangerous and you had bushwhackers and marauders out looting. So lots of people buried their money somewhere in the woods or somewhere on their land. And there could be a fairly vast amount of quote treasure buried in the Ozarks and the Washtaws from that time period. One example, one, one account of the Lost Colony of the Irish Wilderness in Southern Missouri actually is that whoever ended up ambushing the settlement did so for their money and there are tales that either they found the money or they never did find the buried money. And so that there's a tale that there's buried money where the Irish colony was. And so you get that throughout. And then you, and then you get the more colorful versions that usually revolve around Jesse James.
0: <laughs> oh, and the golden circle.
1: Yes, yes. And those overlap because there is a well-known, fairly credible story that the James Younger gang did bury money, particularly perhaps multiple places. There are tales that some in eastern Kansas some down in Oklahoma. And I've heard even, you know, some claim that they buried money in Arkansas. And there's some credibility to that because of things that Frank James said and did in later years, alluding to it. But then you have the Knights of the Golden Circle, which again comes back to that romantic version almost of the Conquestadors.
0: It does. It does. And there's, there's some, and I think something that's powerful when you are unearthing, not necessarily the treasure, but just aspects of the lore and doing comparative analysis with the, with the documentation on the history is that it is very important to separate uh, folklore from reported history. Mm-hmm. The, the two are separate from one another. Obviously, one informs the other and in, in some cases, uh, both subsequent treasure hunting, the other informs the one but at the same time it's very also important to recognize why these stories resonate and why they they can hold such sway in in culture and the fact that folklore may not be historically accurate within a specific time and space and you may not be able to you know go 16 paces south of the hoodal tree and dig up the the buried gold. At the same time, the folklore exists historically and objectively, and it impacts the culture around it. And it is important not to dismiss it because it is part of the the human experience, the human journey, the human narrative in association with the historical facts.
1: Yes. And I guess some people may be asking, what are what 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 are you talking about with the knights of the golden
0: circle oh just a proposed empire
1: yes and basically it was a group it actually started shortly before the civil war but during the civil war its focus turned towards the idea that the southern cause may not prevail and that there should be a focus of establishing a basically a version of the confederacy in Latin America.
0: Yes yes and ironically that also involved uh, reinstating slavery in Mexico which I suspect would have been a harder task than they might have dreamed it could be.
1: Yes because it, that was not the state of affairs in Mexico <laughs> and as aside from the other political issues going on in Mexico at the time between the French and the French trying to uh, take over and so forth. And and some of the Confederates who did go to Mexico ended up in the middle of all of that. And so you had a very, at the end of the war, you had a real exodus of some of the Confederates, including Missourians and William and Joe Shelby, going to Mexico and involving themselves in those in, in that fight and then ultimately returning and then you had this fanciful version of the treasury uh the lost treasury of the confederacy and it, and it, i mean it it is almost verbatim the lost spanish treasure story it's there's a large treasury that leaves richmond on a train and it's not on the train when the train gets i forget somewhere in georgia or whatever
0: and there there, there's so many fascinating complexities of human narrative and how stories get told and what goes on and when and these types of things i think it's incredibly fascinating the i think the in many cases, the correct word is the word that you already used, which is fanciful. There is a, a highly romanticized idea. And you also look at aspect of this. You have a, a very passionate, largely self-romanticizing Southern aristocracy mm-hmm. that is based with the reality that they're going to lose the war.
1: Yes. I mean, the the writing was on the wall for a while, to be perfectly honest. In modern psychological terms, it's almost a a coping mechanism, I think.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I I would agree. agree.
1: And then the lore grew up that there were basically guardians of the lost treasure akin to the Knights Templar. (laughs) It, it Um, It is. And that they buried this treasure in various catches throughout the south and upper south and that these guardians marked them with basically code or markings and that of course the preeminent guardian was Jesse James who in between his bank robberies and everything else was watching out out over these and And the idea was somehow they were gonna retrieve them and refund the Confederacy. And so you get that overlap between the two. And so you get two very fanciful stories intertwined. I do find it interesting that a lot of the lore surrounding the Knights of the Golden Circle treasure Comes down to treasure maps, comes down to hieroglyphs, basically, and markings that are attributed to Jesse James, that of how catches were marked. I also find it interesting that in the Dunbar Hunter report, when they got to Hot Springs, they found what they referenced as Native American hieroglyphs on a rock including two figures that appeared to be shaking hands and a third one pointing a particular direction and in following the direction pointed to they found a basically a encampment that would have been a seasonal encampment for fur trading. Mm. So you ha- you did have some of these things going on way before the Civil War and markings and so forth. And it really does make you wonder if someone found certain markings, was it Jesse James and the Knights of the Golden Circle or was it something older or something else?
0: And I, I think just in terms of, of analysis of the substrate, there, there's something very powerful and extraordinary. You know, we we think of the old time passing 100 years ago. That was 1923. Already yeah. by 1923, already so many landmarks, spaces had been irrevocably changed, modernized, lost. You go back to these stories associating, say, in the 1870s, 1880s things that had existed in the, at the turn of the 19th century, you know, it, genuinely before white settlement in many cases or full-on full statehood and that sort of thing, either, either could still have existed or existed within recent memory by someone yeah. telling you about it. It's a, it's a glimpse into an earlier version of our continent an earlier version of our nation, an earlier version of our state, an earlier version of our backyard that mm-hmm. it, it defies expectation, really. I mean, it's it's to me akin to moments that I've had, say, in river towns going into say an old store and then going Up a flight, this actually happened to me in Henry, Illinois, I wrote about it ages ago, but going into the main store and it was like aging about nearly defunct department store and then the the, the woman behind the desk was like, there's more stuff upstairs and three floors up, I'm suddenly walking through the detritus of like the 1890s going this is extraordinary. I have no idea what to do with it. Obviously, I can't buy it all and take it home with me, but just this extraordinary immersement in the past, and you turn that back a century. That's a lot of what these stories, particularly during the Civil War and shortly after the Civil War, is, is hinting at.
1: Oh, I, I agree with you there, and They've seen me they've seemed to take on a even a bigger form over time. And I think it it is that sense of of that loss, of that disconnection, that lost utopia.
0: And and coming back to the you know, the guardians of the knights of the golden circle, the guardians of the cash and They're to me anyway, there, there's something very again, I use this term a lot, but deeply archetypal, almost magician-like. And you know, appealing of the idea that either your own the the these individuals' own personal narrative or their experience, their 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 travail was not going to come to nothing, and that there were these, I'm going to use a, a Jungian archetypal term, uh, magicians, these Obi Wan Kenobis a standing guard at various locations to herald. A, a new era in which everything that they had gone through was was not for nothing
1: exactly, which over time became the lost narrative i mean it yes. the lost cause narrative and again it's uh, in today's lingo it would be that it was a coping mechanism for the time
0: and I think that's fair and I think it to to a opposing things can exist simultaneously with these types of discussions. One, an understanding of the fictional aspects of this. Mm -hmm. At the same time, understanding that regardless of what side of history a variety of these factions were on, these were real life human beings. Yes, And they had opinions and they did things They made mistakes in some cases they acted very heroically wait that sounds like people now
1: people at any time yes yeah
0: and and that their stories it's it's important not to jump to a knee-jerk reaction to diminish their fiction yeah while at the same time understanding in many many cases that this is a fiction it is a coping mechanism it is not the likelihood that you have the lost confederate gold in your backyard is pretty low pretty low
1: (laughs) and maybe on that note i want to talk about a couple of the lore from the washita's that uh, we didn't get to in part one yes first of all the the daughter in the serpent monster legend i find very interesting and this is on page 50.
0: I really like that story
1: i I do too, and it's also referred to as the underground monster, but, but and sometimes the monster is a giant snake with antlers, which I find interesting because we have similar legends in the Ozarks.
0: We do, we do, and uh, it does also uh, remind me of the past bird.
1: Yes, yes. and'. and- and then the lost elves.
0: Yes, yes and something I particularly love about digging into the Ouachita lore is its association with the Caddo and not that I don't love the lore that we have here in the the, the Ozarks region which is predominantly not exclusively but predominantly Osage and Cherokee with mm-hmm. um, traditional tribes uh, like the Delaware and the Potawatomi come to mind but the but the, the Caddo is a is a is a Mississippian post-Columbian Mississippi mound culture people. And mm-hmm. they do have some some unique facets to their to their lore that I that I really, really, really like. Now I do find an interesting comparison. Of course, the, the Mississippian mound builders are associated with Cahokia, just mm-hmm. north of Cahokia's Alton, Illinois. Uh, we have an antlered serpent bird thing Mm -hmm. associated with Alton that does documentally go back to, you know, to the the Native American peoples in the region as Mm -hmm. being very significant. And now we're talking about a, a Southern Arkansas Caddo people with some very interesting similarities in terms of their monster.
1: Exactly. And so it does show these things didn't happen in isolation. And that's very important. And they have basically their own ogre, Kataja, who's a man-eater,
0: or a devil. Uh, gigantic, uh, hideous, horned, said to eat men, said to eat humans. Yeah, it's uh, really, this is really, really, I think this is really, really fun aspects of our, regional legends
1: i i agree and that tale of the of you know sort of demon or devil is similar to the tale of the daughter and the serpent monster which is two sisters are out gathering food and a some sort of devil or demon rushes out of the bushes and the tents. it's red eyes blazed it's adorned with horns again and the horns are so wide that you can't see the tips they're beyond view the sisters run but the monster captures one who happened to be pregnant she snatches her up with the claws and shoves her into his mouth and gobbles her up the second sister manages to climb a tree and he's trying to climb it can't he's not he's shaking it and basically breaking it she realizes that you know, her time is up and she dives into the water to escape and water often, again, it's almost like the Piazza bird, water panther tale. And he can't find her. Basically she's gone to an underground stream and treat the monster that uh, she returns with her mother and they find the tree and they find an acorn with a single drop of blood on it. They take it home and put it in a jar, and it makes noise, the scratching. Uh, They put a lid on the jar. (laughs) I think I would, too, if it's scratching. The next day, they open it, and there's a little boy, and they decide it's the, the sister's baby. And ultimately, he ends up killing the devil that killed his mother.
0: Yes, there's just some extraordinary motifs Mm -hmm. in the story that that I think it's important for us to remove our post-Renaissance Western training from this story and do an analysis of it more as though it were a, a lucid or symbolic dream.
1: Agreed. really needs to be viewed in sort of the original sense of a Greek myth.
0: And when you, when you start looking at it in a, in a sense of, a, of symbolism and dreamscape, particularly in light of things like dream analysis and that sort of thing, it begins to shine with a level of potential complexity that we don't get when we're doing a literal, quote unquote, scientific analysis. Very true. <laughs> and I will I will be the first one to admit that I'm not skilled enough to do a proper analysis, certainly not at this point, but I am far enough along to be able to recognize these dreamscape symbols that begin to resonate once you get your more linear, a uh, judgmental aspect of your mind out of the way and just accept the story as it is told, instead of the the expectation of logic or scale,
1: right? You do. I mean, you have to be able to suspend disbelief, and and in, in that sense, and viewed that way, it is. It, you know, it is very symbolic of. It sounds cliche. A circle of life, of fairness, of karma, of weighing actions, and I I, I think it's very poetic actually in the story.
0: It is. It is. I find it very beautiful, and you know, and it, and I think it also it it realistically speaks to the dark subconscious of the soul, uh, the things that lurk in the dark, which we're still afraid of, like Bigfoot.
1: That's true, very true. Before we get to quite there, though, lost elves, I. Uh- I find it interesting that they categorize it that way on that terms. I mean, it certainly is a a type of a little people lore, little people in the sense of the Cherokee little people, uh, Irish fairies, et cetera. But I really like the Cato version because they are also ghosts.
0: There's There's a intersection of difficult to categorize. That that is really really powerful, and of course the you know the from the catalogues of my Pulse News, I, I like some of the the wording. The malefic lost elves who live inside hollow trees, haunting the forests and abducting humans and turning them into elves. It's mm-hmm. it almost might be fair to say ghost elves.
1: Yeah, that's that's how it seems, and. I mean, there are there are definitely similarities with the Cherokee legends of the little people. It also reminds me a lot of the Quapaw tales of the Iwa,
0: and it's again haunting thickets, haunting nocturnal areas. Certainly, one of the one of the implications is that it haunts plum thickets, and mm-hmm. plum thickets can be very magical places in and of themselves.
1: That's true, and it, it makes these spaces. A threshold,
0: it does, it very much does, and that that in and of itself is really fascinating because it's it's always encouraging. The lore like this is encouraging us to look at easy to overlook spaces as very important,
1: as important, and that things are not cut and dried, and we tend to try to categorize things that way. I think particularly themes that don't exist anymore, so to speak. Aspects of culture or time and place that have passed into the realm of non-existence. Yes. And I think this illustrates that very well. Now, I think another aspect of lore from that area that is very very dominant that I mean we we touched on the felt monster in part one of this subject but is just a broader pervasiveness of bigfoot lore very true and that runs from the arkansas washitas into the oklahoma washitas as well
0: it does it does there's and there there's a lot of individuals who are out looking for
1: there are and I, I've know I know some that that do on a regular basis. I know someone that's down in northeast Oklahoma that has land down the Washita's that says he's encountered Bigfoot on his land. And for anyone that's you know wondering about credibility or anything, um, he, he's a very serious person. He's a, he's an attorney has land down in the washington mountains and and has encountered these beings and is very open about it he has talked about the sensation of feeling like there is a mystical aspect to it actually
0: and you get that and and again because it's outside of post-renaissance thought Mm -hmm. you know it's it is in this particular situation, the, the simple reality may, is our ability, our, our desire to overly categorize uh, and structure everything logically may actually be prohibiting us from understanding what's going on.
1: Well, it, in one aspect of it, it reminds me of the Lost Elves or Little People lore in that how he has described it is getting an overwhelming sense of come with us, come be with us Mm. and then resisting that so that it reminds you of this lore of these beings luring people to the forest, luring them away, and then the next iteration is turning them into elves themselves, but just the the wording description he's he's given me of the sense of in their presence reminds me of that being lured away so maybe there is something to that lore
0: well the the one thing that i do know is it's a very unsettling idea
1: very one that uh, perhaps we aren't as in control of our volition as as we want to be and that there's something living in the woods or the mountains that can affect our free will
0: or within the trees themselves
1: very true so that is something that is unsettling and I'm not sure if it'd be more unsettling 200 years ago when there were few, very few people out there, or more unsettling now when we are so comfortable in our living rooms. But
0: I, th- I think, I think the experience would provide an existential crisis of some sort, regardless. <laughs>
1: yes, <laughs> very likely, very likely. But it, it does seem that there, there is just a very widespread awareness and presence of Bigfoot encounters in that space, even more so than the arc of the of the Ozarks.
0: Especially, and again, it seems, especially as you get into Oklahoma.
1: Yeah, for the further west you go in the Ouachita's, and the Folk Monster is just sort of the rock star of, of, of the area, I guess, so.
0: Thank you, Charles B. Pierce.
1: Exactly. <laughs> Is there anything else that you want to cover before we
0: wind up? Uh, I, think, I think the the existential dread of, of wood elves and possibly Bigfoot is, is a good place to conclude.
1: I think so. And on that note, don't forget to check out upcoming events and merchandise at darkozarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. Thank you again to Always buying Books and Beard Engine Brewing Company for helping to bring the Dark Ozarts to everyone.
0: On the next episode, we are going to be discussing the dark history of the Lake of the Ozarks. Catch the Dark Ozarks podcast on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or about any other podcast platform. Thank you, everyone. And remember, there are no easy answers in the Dark Ozarks.